Okay. Uh, if you have your Bible, find the Gospel of John, chapter 15. This morning we're coming to, and going to begin, we'll spend a couple of weeks in this chapter, coming to a very well-known chapter in John's Gospel, John 15. And not only in just in John's Gospel, but in the, in the New Testament. This is one of the, one of the um, high point chapters, has a lot of uh, important truth to teach us. And uh, for our purposes this morning, not only is this an important chapter that we're coming to, but with this, we also come to the last of the seven I am statements in John's gospel. Uh, we've said this many times. These, there's seven of them. I don't think that's coincidental. Um, but the, the, these I am statements are significant, not only because, or mainly because, it is seven instances, and there are more actually, where Jesus just absolutely takes that, this divine name to himself when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Um, just blankly, in an absolute way, I am. Taking the divine name that God revealed himself to Moses by in the burning bush in Exodus 3, Jesus took that name for himself. And seven other times, Jesus took that name for himself in a, in a relative kind of way, adding some, some sort of uh, metaphor along with it. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now we come to John 15, and, it, and, and the seventh and final of those statements is this. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Um, this is a, another statement like so many of the ones I mean, the, the last one we looked at was, was an, except, an exception to this, when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. With, with that one aside, almost every other one we've, had, we've looked at, I'm the, I'm the bread, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the you know, light of the world. These have such rich and deep Old Testament roots uh, to them. And, and, and for that reason, when Jesus uttered them, because they carry so much Old Testament baggage with them, it would have been astonishing to hear uh, to the to disciples or anyone hearing him say that. So we, the same thing kind of going on here, I'm quite confident with his disciples. So this is a beautiful passage to think about. Let's read it, and then, uh, and then we'll dive into it. John 15, and uh, follow along with me as I read aloud. Uh, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 17. And here they are in the upper room, the night Jesus will be betrayed and arrested. And Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, here's, here's an explanation of one way that we abide in him. 
and my words abide in you. That's one way that we abide in him. Ask whatever you wish. Prayer is another way that we abide in him. And it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another. As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Um. And you did not choose me, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, and inerrant, sufficient, clear, and authoritative word. And I pray and I ask you, Lord, that as we study what the Lord Jesus has said to us here and, and what he said and brought to John's remembrance to write through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, you might give us eyes to see the truth that you want us to see in this passage. There's m way more here, Lord. I, I feel the weight of it. There's way more here than we can bring out in one sitting. Help us to see what you would have us to see today. Give us minds to understand the truth that Jesus is teaching us here. Give us not just minds to understand it. Um, give us hearts to embrace and love and trust. And, um, you know, delight in the truth that, that Jesus teaches us here. Not just minds to understand, not just hearts to embrace and love, but would you give us wills to obey whatever Jesus is calling us to obey here. Give me the help that I need to teach, and please give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, like I said, there's a, there's a lot here in these verses that deserves, deserves our attention. But even with that being true, we're going to give our greatest focus and attention in these verses to the I am statement that Jesus uh, makes. Why? Um, not because that's just what we've been doing, but I will say everything else that Jesus says here, Everything else that Jesus says in these verses is influenced by how we understand the I am statement. Uh, and some of the things, some of the things that Jesus says here are very open to misunderstanding. And we get wrong if we get the I am statement wrong or if we uh, ignore the significance of it. So we're going to focus mainly on the I am statement, and then with the time we have left, try to see how it helps us to understand everything else that we see here, okay? So the statement Jesus makes right at the outset in verse 1, I am the true vine, and then he repeats it in, in briefer form in verse 5, I am the vine. Uh, and so uh, if you're taking notes, 
here's how, here's just, I just wanted two points and two, break it down in two ways this morning to think through it. Uh, we're going to think first about the background, the background of the I am statement. So we, so that we really get an idea of what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the true vine, or in verse 5, I am the vine. Again, I, I think if you don't understand or recognize the background, the Old Testament background roots to this statement, you'll totally miss the point of everything else that he says. So we're going to look at a couple of different major Old Testament passages that, uh, that set the stage for understanding what he says here, the background first. And then from the rest of the verses we read, we're going to see the significance, the significance of what he says here. So for the significance for his, his uh, disciples there in the upper room, the significance for us today, still today, the, the significance is the same for them as it is for us. So let's dive in and think first about the background to this statement in the Old Testament. So clearly when Jesus says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, he is speaking not literally, but metaphorically. And he's drawing on a very, very common metaphor um, in the Old Testament, when he, when he uses this vine and, and vineyard imagery. Um, and, not, and, and if you're familiar with the Gospels, not just the Gospel of John, which we're studying now, but the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll, you'll, it may, uh, just think about how many times in those Gospels Jesus tells a parable and a vine or a vineyard is the setting for that parable. I mean, just, just a few examples. Over and over again, he does this. Do you, just to give you an idea of how many times it happens. Like, so you have the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21, also in Mark 12 and Luke 20. But you remember in that, in that parable, the parable of the tenants, that a man planted a vineyard. Okay, this, is, this is just part and parcel of the story. He planted a vineyard, and then he hired tenants to work it. And every time he would send a servant to go gather the fruit, um, they would kill the servants. And eventually... The, the, the master of the vineyard said, well, I'm going to send them my own son, and surely they won't, they'll listen to him, but they kill the, the son as well. That's the parable of the tenants. It happens in a vineyard. Or before that, you have the parable of the two sons uh, who, were, who were asked to go to work. Where? In a vineyard. One said no, but changed his mind and later went to work. The other one agreed to work changed his mind and never went. And Jesus, in that parable, said the first who said no but later went, the first did his, uh, the master's will, even though he initially said no. It didn't matter that the other son said yes when he didn't go. He didn't obey. And the whole, obviously, he was, he was, Jesus, in that instance, was showing how the tax collectors and the prostitutes who, uh, who followed Christ were in the right while the Pharisees, who said the right things but didn't walk in obedience, were in the wrong. But it happened, the parable did, in a vineyard. You have a par the parable of the, of the about laborers in a vineyard. Remember this parable, uh, it happened in a vineyard, and the, the master hired different men to go work in the, in the vineyard at different times in the day. Right? Some he hired first thing in the morning, and they worked all day long, and he hired different men at different intervals throughout the day. And some, the last, he, he hired like the hour before quitting time. And so they worked to the end of the day, and they were going to settle up and be paid. And all of them got paid the same thing. And the people who had worked all day were angry about it and outraged that the guy who just worked one hour got paid the same as me. 
And Jesus' point in telling that parable uh, is to teach that God's grace is always undeserved. It's always undeserved. And so uh, in the kingdom, the last will be first and the first will be last. Or just one more. You've got the example of the parable of the barren fig tree in Luke 13, also taking place in a vineyard. There was a fig tree in the, in the vineyard that was supposed to bear fruit, but for years had not, so he cut it down. I mean, Jesus regularly told parables using this metaphor or this imagery of a vine or a vineyard, and he's doing it again here in John 15. So it raises the question, why? Is there some significance to the fact, not only that he says it here, but also that he does it so many other times? Why does Jesus tell so many parables and make so many statements uh, about using this image of a vine or a vineyard? Was he running out of ideas for his parables? Obviously not. Why always a vineyard? The, there was a very real reason, I'm, I'm convinced, that Jesus seemed always to choose a vineyard for the setting of his parables and using the imagery in this last I am statement, I am a true vine, it's because that was an image used over and over and over again in the Old Testament um, and it comes into play here, and I want to see how, just to set the stage and see the background of what Jesus is saying. Let's turn, hold your place here in John 15. First, turn back to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who was, just for your information, to log it away, he was a prophet in the 8th century B.C. He was a contemporary of... Uh, the prophets Hosea and Micah. So when you're, if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, you're just reading through and you get to these major and minor prophets and they just appear like this is just names to you. Sometimes it helps to bring them to life to remember when they lived. And these guys were prophesying at the same time. Hosea, Micah, Isaiah. But anyway, here we are in Isaiah 5. And uh, look at what we read in verses 1 through 7. All right, let's just read that. Verse 1, let me, sing a so let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a, a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but he yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I, shall, I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I, also, I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon you. Verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and, also the, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So you read that. Can you see any kind of similarity between that passage and the one in John 15. 
Absolutely you can. Here in, 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 in Isaiah 5, there's, there's a vineyard which he says outright represents Israel and Judah. It represents the people of God as a whole. And he said he planted it with choice vines, which would have been the individuals of that whole, of the people of Israel. Which, uh, and he expe- what did he expect? He expected those vines to bear good fruit. And that sounds just like John 15, verse 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. But in Isaiah's prophecy, here in Isaiah 5, the vines in the vineyard did not bear good fruit. Um, and, and which is why Isaiah prophesied that God would bring judgment on them, which if you know the history, he most certainly did. The northern kingdom of Israel, he brought the Assyrians, and they wiped them out. And the southern kingdom of Judah, he brought the Babylonians, and they wiped them out. But keep in, keep in mind the basic point of the metaphor. That's what Jesus is going to be picking up when he says, I am the true vine. The basic point of the metaphor. Why vines? Why a vineyard? Because vines bear fruit. Vines bear fruit. Uh, and just like... Uh, Vines in the vineyard are expected to bear fruit, so we are expected to bear the fruit of obedience. That's just the basic gist of the metaphor. Okay, that's one level of the Old Testament background here. Just keep that in mind. That's the gist of the basic metaphor of vines, vineyard. All right, there's another level um, that we're also going to see. But just to recap, first level, God uses vine and vineyard imagery to represent in the Old Testament Israel and Judah, and the obedience that they owe to him as their creator and as the one who brought them out of slavery in Egypt so that they would be his special people. That's what he expected out of them. He expected the vine that he planted, Israel, Judah, to bear fruit. But what happened? They rebelled. They didn't produce the obedience, the fruit of obedience that was expected. That's level number one of the Old Testament background. So here's the other level of it. Sometimes... When God refers to Israel and Judah as his um, special vineyard that he expects to bear fruit, he also refers to them as his son. He also refers to Israel as his son. He's their father and they are his son. See that? Keep turning left a little bit back to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. We've already come to this psalm once in this study in john when we looked at jesus when he said i am the good shepherd we made reference to this psalm god is described that way in verse one give ear O shepherd of israel but later in that same psalm psalm 80 we also see some of this old testament background to i am the true vine in psalm 80 so look first at verses seven and eight Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. So clearly, again, this is talking about Israel, and it's described as a vine that God planted to be his special thing. And it's, but it's saying, restore us, restore us, O God of hosts, because this, this is a psalm that was written later after God had already brought that judgment on them for their disobedience because they didn't bear fruit. 
So the psalmist is asking for God's mercy to restore them, to restore to them his favor. And so now look down at verses 14 and 15. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the, catch this, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. This isn't talking about two different things, that one thing is a son, one thing is a vine. He's not talking about two different things. He's calling Israel two things. He's calling them a vine that he planted and his son. And this is not the only time that he does this. This this shows up a lot of times in the Old Testament. God had first called Israel his son, Right before, right before he brings them out of slavery uh, in the Exodus. He tells Moses, for example, and you can just jot this down if you're taking notes. He tells Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. He tells Moses uh, to go and tell Pharaoh, and there it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. So over and over again in the Old Testament, God says Israel is like his son. Uh, They are his special people out of all the nations of the earth. And they are like a vineyard that he planted and gave blessing to, that the vines in his vineyard would bear the fruit of obedience and, and know the blessing as his son. And he would continue to bless Israel like a father to a son and as a good gardener over his vineyard. But again, we know the history, right? We know the Old Testament history. They they didn't obey. Uh, Paul says in Romans 3, nobody does. Nobody does. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. No one does good, not even one. All have turned aside, Romans 3. But Jesus the Son of God, right, comes and to his disciples, you can go back to John 15, he comes to his disciples in the upper room on the night that he would be be betrayed and says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. You see, Israel was like God's Son. Jesus is the Son of God. And Israel was the vine in God's vineyard that he expected to bear fruit, the fruit of obedience, but Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the true vine who perfectly obeyed the will of God the Father his whole life, and he would become obedient to the point of death, Paul would say in Philippians 2, even death on a cross. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, vine, that imagery, that imagery throughout the Bible, Old Testament, is teaching us, is teaching us what, it comes into play here, and what it's teaching us is what we've said many times, specifically, that when Jesus came to save us and to save sinners, he didn't just come to die in our place, but also to be obedient in our place, to live our life as well as to take our death. 
So when he rose from the dead, he could give everyone who believes the complete forgiveness of sins as well as a righteousness to stand in before God. That's a beautiful truth. In five words, I'm the true vine. But it's not all that he says here. So I want us to think for a minute about the significance of what he says. Not just the background. The background is, is quite rich. But also the significance of what he says in the rest of our passage. And knowing that is what he's saying in verse 1, it helps us to understand what he's saying in the remainder of the verses. Um, because these verses, if we're honest with ourselves, um, they aren't, for, for some, they aren't the easiest to understand. They almost seem like hard sayings. Um, for example, look what he says in the very next verse. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear fruit. What does he mean when he says, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away? And he'll say something like it again in verse 6. If, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Is he saying in those places that someone can be in Christ and then fall away? Is he saying that, that, that you can be a branch, genuinely a branch, and then not be one? No. That would flatly contradict his plain, plain as day statements in this very gospel. I mean, just think about two passages that, that we've already come across. Here's what he says in John 6, 37 through 40. All right, this is Jesus speaking. John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. That doesn't sound wishy-washy or iffy in the least. Just think about the certainty in those statements. I will never cast out. I will lose nothing. I will give them eternal life. I will raise them up on the last day. Similarly, John 10, 28, about his sheep. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, certainty. A great Reformation principle of interpreting the Bible is Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture is its own best interpreter. So that when we... I pray every week after we read the passage, right? This is your... 
inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and clear, clear, authoritative and necessary word. Not every single verse is clear, but there is enough clear in it to help shed light on the things that are less clear. So, for example, right here, when you come to verse 2 and you read, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit he takes away, don't forget what you just read in verse 1. Don't, don't forget what you read in chapter 10. Don't forget what you read in chapter 6. It's not going to contradict those things. Those crystal clear passages are going to shed light on whatever it is that this means. So whatever Jesus means in verse 2 and in verse 6 about the Father pruning those who do not bear fruit does not conflict with what he's already so clearly said in this very gospel. I believe he's simply saying what you see repeatedly in the book of Hebrews. And if you were not, we, we, we studied through the book of Hebrews a little while back in our college ministry. If you, if you want to hear some of those, they're probably still on our podcast. Just scroll back some and you can listen to, as we thought through. We saw this repeatedly in Hebrews that there are some who give the appearance of being connected to Christ in some way, whether it's by some outward profession of faith in Him or by some kind of association with the church. But if there is no fruit of obedience in your life, your actions are telling a different story. And when I say your actions are telling a different story, do I simply mean your actions for which you need to repent? No, I don't mean only that. If that's... if. if your actions tell a different story. If your sinful actions tell a different story, my goodness, if I simply mean all those things that we do that we need to repent of, if that's what it means, we would all be pruned away. Every one of us would be pruned away, right, and thrown into the fire. No, we all stumble in sin, and Jesus knows it. Peter was about to that very night. But Jesus knows that Peter is not Judas. And one in whom is the Spirit of God, when that person sins, there, because he has the Holy Spirit within him, there will come with it discontentment with that sin. Sorrow over that sin. It's like a rock in your shoe. It's not, you don't, you're not okay with it. Right? And it comes with repentance. Dane Ortland says in Gentle and Lowly, which I commend to you strongly, says, our very agony, our very agony in sinning is the fruit of our adoption. A cold heart would not be bothered. And I love what he... And so it's, not the, it's just not those who sin who are pruned away. It's those who remain and persist in unrepentance. That's, that's what an unbeliever looks like. And I love what he goes on to say, Ortland does. When you sin, do a thorough job of repenting. Rehate sin all over again. 
Consecrate yourself afresh to the Holy Spirit and His pure ways, but reject the devil's whisper that God's tender heart for you has grown a little colder, a little stiffer. He is not flustered by your sinfulness. His deepest disappointment is with your tepid thoughts of His heart. Christ died, placarding before you the love of God. What Jesus is referring to here, I think, is like what Paul refers to in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And there is no repentance. So Jesus is sim simply saying in John 15, I'm convinced, that there are some, just like in that, in that other parable er, I mentioned earlier about the vineyard, the parable of the two sons, where the second son said he was going to go, but never went. His actions didn't follow or confirm the profession that he had made. As John the Baptist said, there's never any fruit born in keeping with repentance. It's that person who Jesus is talking about, who says they believe, and so outwardly somebody might think they are connected to the vine but who really don't, and their lives bear the fruit of that unbelief. And don't forget the immediate context of what Jesus is saying here. Judas, a disciple who walked by his side for three years, has just left to betray him. And in so doing, he's betraying the lack of saving faith in his own heart. There was no repentance in him. And he looks at his disciples in verse 3, and he says, Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you, meaning they are true believers. He's already washed them clean by, by their faith in his words. And so now what? While their standing place is, is secure because Jesus is the true vine, and, and their standing is how, insofar as they are connected to him. Jesus is the true vine. He's been obedient in our place. He has earned our righteousness. And at the same time, at the time that he said this, he was about to go to the cross for our sins. We are still called to follow hard after Christ and to grow in the righteousness we've already been given. He still calls us here actively to abide in him daily. That's the difference between justification and sanctification, right? Um, in justification, we are declared righteous before God. In sanctification, we are progressively made righteous because of what the Spirit now does in us. Justification is a declaration declared upon us. Sanctification is a work done within us. And so how do we pursue that righteousness? How do we pursue it? Again, Jesus says in verse 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We bear fruit by abiding in him, which he'll describe, like I mentioned earlier, in verse 7 as how do you abide in him? By allowing his words to abide in you. And, and, and it says, let my, my words abide in you. And when you uh, ask whatever you wish. So it's like his words abiding in us and us turning our hearts toward him in prayer. That's abiding in him. And as we walk, as we walk by faith in him and preach this gospel to ourselves every day, he produces in us the fruit 
that he desires in us. And that fruit is spelled out in the rest of the passage. What, is that, what does that fruit look like? Verse 9, it looks like knowing and delighting in the love of Christ. As the Father has... Can you just wrap your head around that sentence? Verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Is there any conditionality in the Father's love to the Son? And just like that, he loves you. That's right out of Jesus' mouth. What, what does the fruit looks like? In verse 10, it looks like obedience to the commands of God. Verse 10, and obedience doesn't just mean you always do what is right. Obedience looks like when you do wrong, you repent. That's obedience. Repentance is obedience. In verse 15, it's knowing and delighting in the friendship of Christ. In, in, in verse 16, it's, it's being steadfast in prayer and bearing witness to the gospel of Christ. The fruit he's talking about is the whole spectrum of work that he does in our lives for his glory. He's the true vine, and so we are already perfectly righteous in his sight, and now he is beginning the work of making us in practice to be righteous like him. Here's how John would say the same thing in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And as Paul would later tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, if you don't believe this, look it up. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And on that note, let me just end with something worth hearing from, again, gentle and lowly. It's, from, it's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. This is so good. Mind you, he uh, was a preacher in the 1800s, so he kind of talked like it. He used words like air, E-R-E, -E, air. We don't do that. It means before. Christ loved you before all worlds. Long ere the day star flung his ray across the darkness, before the wing of angel had flapped the unnavigated ether, before aught of creation had struggled from the womb of nothingness. Isn't that good? God, even our God, had set his heart upon his children. Since that time, has he once swerved? Has he once turned aside? Once changed? No. You who have tasted of his love and know his grace will bear me witness that he has been a certain friend in uncertain circumstances. You have often left him. Has he ever left you? You have had many trials and troubles. Has he ever deserted you? Has he ever turned away his heart and shut up his bowels of compassion? 
No, children of God, it is your solemn duty to say no and bear witness to his faithfulness. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for these promises. These, the words in, in, in John 15, we confess, Lord, are hard for us because there's so many conditional statements. There's a lot of ifs. We remember that those ifs are there because it is incumbent upon us to strive for holiness and to walk in obedience, which looks like repentance also when we sin. It's a reminder that if we care nothing, if we care nothing about following Christ, if we care nothing about walk in obedience. That's indicative of something deeper and darker going on in our own hearts. Oh, Lord, but thank you for the promise and the reality, not just the promise, the reality, Lord Jesus, that you are the true vine. You were the one who uh, obeyed where Israel and Judah failed miserably and where we fail miserably. You are the righteous one in our place. You are the one you are the righteousness in which we stand. Love just as the Father loves you. And you have promised to work in us that righteousness that you call us to, to live out. And so, thank you for passages like this. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.